0: This audio production is presented by Good Shepherd Presbyterian Church in Ocala, Florida. For more resources, visit us online at gspcocala.com. This morning's sermon passage is from the Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and his disciples believed in him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever.
1: Thank you, Suzanne. Uh, Would you all please bow your heads and pray with me? Merciful Father, uh, would you let us know you now. Holy Spirit, would you come, uh, open up our ears, soften our hearts, uh, bring conviction and bring comfort. Uh, Let us lay a hold of the joy of looking forward to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Uh, Father, would you show us Christ now? Uh, that we might rejoice in him. Uh, God, would you uh, come and speak to all of us, uh, either through me or in spite of me, uh, that everyone in this room uh, would walk out today able to say that they've heard you today. In Christ's name, amen. It's kind of a rainy day. My dad uh, would remind you all that uh, it's a it's a great privilege to fall asleep in church. He tells me it's an honor if somebody sleeps when I'm preaching; it means they're comfortable around me. So, just just want you to know you're welcome. Uh, and at the same time, uh, on a on a rainy day, uh, to talk about a wedding feast, right? Uh, uh, I get to do weddings, and weddings are awesome, uh, they're super fun, uh, and uh, people always try and make them happier than they are, uh, so that if it rains on your wedding, maybe it rained on your wedding, and what do people say? Oh, it's good luck if it rains on your wedding. Actually, it's just a pain. Uh, it messes things up. It's not as fun. Um, but you can make it fun, and you do whatever you want to, but uh, a, a rainy day uh, is a day that you probably would rather take a nap. Um, but in God's providence, he has before us a feast, uh, a party, a celebration. Uh, we are, uh, are turning from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and as we uh, march toward Easter, uh, we're gonna take the next, uh, I believe it's eight or nine Sundays. I should know, but I don't. Uh, and we're going to look uh, from the teachings of Jesus to the person of Jesus. Uh, So we've spent a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount looking at the words that God gave us. Uh, Now we're going to look at the the person, the personality, the character, who is Jesus. Uh, And we're going to take different stories uh, from the Gospels and and hold them up uh, somewhat uh, like looking at a diamond and looking at the facets of who Christ is. Uh, and uh, in God's providence and, and in Jesus's intent, this was the first of his uh, miracles, of his signs. Uh, and so we take this first uh, to set a tone for us. Uh, I think just about any person on the planet uh, has an idea about who Jesus is. Uh, we, we, Jesus is pretty hard to miss. He's perhaps the most famous person in history. And so most people have some thought of who he is. Uh, the difficulty is taking that thought, that opinion, that, uh, that drawing of who we think Jesus is and then shape it according to what he actually did and who he actually said he was. Uh, and so what we're trying to do is, is more or less answer that question, what's he really like? Maybe you uh, have a friend who knows somebody who's famous and you've asked them that question before, right? What, what are they really like? You spent time with them. What What were they like as a kid? What are they really like? This is looking at Jesus and not just letting the caricature of who he was, but instead seeing his heart and who he is. Again, we start with John 2. And in John, you have to always remember, John tells stories and he tells of Jesus performing miracles, but he doesn't call them miracles and he does so very intentionally. He calls them signs. He says there in verse 11, this is the first of the signs that Jesus did. And a sign tells you that when John says this was a sign, the purpose of of hearing the story, of seeing the event, is not just to see the event, but to read into what's going on. This is where God actually invites us to look beyond the surface. Uh, and, and if you really want to have some fun, uh, the gospel of John is, is begging for you to peel back the layers of it and go deep into it. Uh, if you know uh, Tim Mackey, uh, he uh, does the Bible Project videos He's a great theologian, super fun. He has a a six-hour teaching uh, that you can get the video on the internet if you just Google Tim Mackey and the Gospel of John, where he just peels through the Gospel of John in six hours of lecturing, uh, which six hours of lecturing sounds painful. Um, But what he does and shows just the deep, deep layers you can go into the Gospel of John, because John is, is... it's just teeming with uh, with references, uh, with connections, because the life of Jesus is teeming with connections to everything. Uh, and so as we look at this sign, what we want to do is see the story and then peel back some of the layers of what, what is Jesus showing of himself and how do we respond to that. So uh, again, to begin with, you've got to recognize this is it's a little bit of a weird place to start. That Jesus, as, as he is uh, putting his, what does it say? He manifests his glory, right? As he's putting himself on display, the way he kicks it off hearing the Gospel of John is in a, a nowhere town, Cana of Galilee. It's you know a few miles from Nazareth. We think there's a couple of different sites. We think are Cana, right? It, it's not all that important. And on top of that, he's at somebody's wedding. I mean, we don't know whose wedding it is, the purpose of the wedding, we don't really know. And what does he do? He makes wine, which for some of us is a sticking point and really hard. And for others of us is, uh, is one of our favorite things Jesus does. We're gonna try and get in the middle of that, okay? <laughs> and then on top of that, nobody knows about it, right? Right? the disciples, the servants, and his mom. But as far as we know, the, the, the people at the wedding, they, they just keep partying. That's a weird way to say, let me show you my glory, but nobody look. So what's he doing? What's he doing in this very odd story to start it off? Well, Again, I want to dig into the story, and then we're going to pull some stuff out of it. On the third day, which right there, you all oh, the third day. This is a, it probably doesn't mean anything connected to the third day and rising. I'm sorry, it'd be fun if it did. What John does here at the very beginning is he tracks the first first week of Jesus' life very intentionally, and this is the third day after. It's technically the sixth day, but it's fun. So the third day. There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. In other words, a nowhere town, there was a party. And the mother of Jesus, her name is Mary, in case you haven't read that part before. She was there and Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, this is a normal thing. Jesus uh, clearly somehow is connected to this, and his disciples had been enough of his life at this point, uh, even though in the, in the timeline of John, it's pretty tight. They're like, hey, they're your buddies. You bring them, and they party. Some, uh, some people like to point at this as the reason why they ran out of wine is Jesus showed up with disciples, um, which, one, is a really fun idea of thinking about who the disciples are. If they show up at your wedding, you're going to run out of wine quickly. Um, there's nothing that really tells us that, unfortunately. So maybe that's it, maybe not. Uh, just having some fun there. But when they showed up, they, the wine ran out. Which, if you're, if you're talking about the, the, the global scale of problems, right? The wine running out is not a big deal. When you're talking about the Son of God come down from heaven to redeem humanity... A wedding party in a nowhere town, running out of wine, I don't care about. I'd rather get a green light at a traffic light, okay? But Jesus says, oh no, this is a big problem. And for those people, right, for the, for the host, for the groom, or as the language here, the bridegroom, this, this would not have just been a, oh, guys, sorry, uh, we're all out, have some wine, we got some lemonade on the side. Y'all just party on, this is, this is a, a, an insult to everyone that's been invited. Uh, there, there's actually legal precedent for him to be sued at this point because the party stopped short of what he was supposed to provide. Uh, and again, this is not, uh, this is not uh, people who had established themselves in the community and were well-respected and, and can move on. These are young people throwing a huge celebration And they have started their life off together by embarrassing themselves and insulting all of their community. For them, it's a big deal. This is not something that you can just run and fix real quick either. The problem is enough to destroy them. And on top of that, and clearly Jesus cares about this, it means the party's over. Do you think Jesus cares if a party ends? You need to he's bothered by the fact that the party would stop. When the wine ran out, verse three, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine, which right away, you wanna say why? There's nothing in the gospel of John that should make you think, Mary's got this idea of, oh, I can make this happen. And there's nothing that tells us what's going on and what moves her into this. But she goes and says, there's a problem. Maybe some of you are this person or know this person, that anytime you're in a social gathering, if there's something not right, they take it upon themselves to fix the problem, right? Some commentators believe Mary was a part of the party planning. Seems like she was whether they asked her to or not. And if you think about Mary and her relationship to Jesus, not only as the son of God, but also of her firstborn son, And it seems as though Joseph uh, is out of the picture pretty early. It seems like Mary would have depended on Jesus a lot. And when she sees a problem like this, the first person she would go to would be Jesus, just out of the fact that he's firstborn son and helps in situations like this. And so she says, there's a problem. They're out of wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, first off, uh, most of us are ears prick, right? Do you talk to your mom like that? Sometimes I quote scripture at my mother like that and she doesn't like it either. Woman, Jesus called her that? Come on, mom. What, what's he doing? Uh, if you've got your Bibles open, some of you may have a translation uh, that doesn't want to get in trouble. And so they say, dear woman, and uh, we call that bad translating. Um, they're just scared they're gonna get in trouble with their own wives or mothers. What, what's going on there is he, he's not saying, oh, dear woman. He, he, he's not softening it, uh, but he's also not being harsh, right? Some of you only hear woman. No, no, uh, clearly he's not doing that either. Just reading in the context of it, she doesn't say, whoa, 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 whoa. And she's not offended by it. And at the same time, she recognizes there's something going on here. When he calls her woman, it seems as though, again, pulling back the layers, what Jesus is sitting in is not just a wedding. if this is supposed to be a a revealing of his glory, a manifestation of his glory, he's not here accidentally and just happened to make extra Kool-Aid for everybody. But it seems as though he is remembering the depths of what a wedding is and the purpose in which God gave us marriage. And for those sitting there saying, what's happening is so much greater than just a lack of wine. So that he looks and somewhat hearkening back to the first woman says to his mom, woman, as in this wedding is echoing all the way back to the beginning and all the way to the future. Uh, Tim Keller, when he talks about this moment, uh, he says, That he thinks Jesus uh, is probably off thinking about something else. And that's part of the reason he responds to his mother the way he does, is because he's in deep thought. Now, if Jesus is at a wedding, what would Jesus be thinking about? Right? Well, these words tell us a little bit. Jesus has a wedding that he's waiting for, Jesus has come in search of his bride. And he's looking forward to what Revelation calls the wedding supper of the Lamb, his wedding day. Have you ever been to a wedding and you're single and all you do the whole time is think about yours? Wanting it, longing for it, maybe thinking it's never coming? Jesus knows that. It's impossible for him to sit at a wedding and not think, I can't wait for mine. This is why I'm here. But also, he knows what it takes to get to his wedding day. That's why he says, my hour has not come. In the Gospel of John, every time he talks about my hour, he's talking about his death. And he knows to win his bride, it's not all joy. But there's death in front of him. So he uses this this, uh, really difficult to understand language. We clear it up as we write it in our translations. What does this have to do with me? And because we don't wanna get too deep in the Greek, just know that it doesn't say that exactly. What it says is something along the lines of, for you and for me, so what? You come to me and say, there's no wine. What does that have to do with you? And what does that have to do with me? And why are you bringing us into this? And it seems like Jesus is trying to say, you you think there's a problem of wine. I want you to see what does this have to do with me? This has to do everything with me. This is a sign pointing to something so much greater. But if you don't understand, the wine is not my problem and it's not your problem, but what it's pointing at is a massive problem and it's why I'm here is I've come in search of a bride. I've come to get my bride. And what it's going to take is the hour of my death. But not yet. When you read that, it sounds like Jesus is looking at his mom saying, leave me alone, I'm not going to do anything. And then her response to that is to tell the servants what? Do whatever he says. Some people say the greatest sermon ever, right? Do whatever he says. Pretty good. too short in my opinion. <laughs> she doesn't say, "Now now Jesus, I need your help." She takes him saying, "Woman, what does this have to do with me? It's not my hour to mean oh, he's going to do something." So when he communicates that, he, it's clearly not this brush off, it's not a leave me alone, it's not a I don't care, but instead it's raising the situation up to say this this is significant. And so she turns to the servants and says, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be fun. Do whatever he says. And John says, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. These, these water jars uh, God had commanded his people to purify themselves in a lot of different ways in a lot of different times. All of that need for purification pointed to the reality that in our sin, we had no right to approach God. So that all throughout the Old Testament law, throughout the Levitical law, there are these standards of clean and unclean. Uh, of being holy and being defiled. Uh, and there's this, this spectrum on which we stand and are constantly trying to, we, we need to cleanse ourselves because of the reality of our lives bring filth and that filth cannot draw near to God until it is washed clean. And so everywhere they go, there are things that they would do. Uh, these jars uh, were these massive jars that were uh, not made out of clay, like you would think of, uh, but instead stone, uh, so that the, 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 the vessel didn't contaminate the pure water. So he takes these, the, these jars that were meant for Jewish worship practices. And anytime especially in the book of John, when Jesus starts to deal with Jewish worship practices, whether it's the temple, right? Whether it's these jars, you know what he's doing is he's pointing and he's pulling it out to say, this is what is, and I am coming to bring something new and better and full. He doesn't do it to say, oh, that's trash but instead to point out and say, I am bringing this to fulfillment. So he doesn't see these jars and you'll kick them over and say, break those things. We hate those things. Instead, he's taking them and saying, no, 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 no. Where this once was, we're fast forwarding at light speed into beauty and goodness. We see that because there are six jars. And again, to unpack the layers Six is the number of incomplete. It's the number of insufficient. It's the number of chaos. It's the number of not perfect, which is seven. It is a way of saying these jars and what they stand for are not yet there. I'm going to get them there. And so he has them. Notice the size, 20 to 30 gallons, which means Jesus makes how much wine? A lot. I will note, this is nowhere near as much as uh, Calvin had as part of his uh, salary stipend for a year. Had 250 gallons of wine as part of his stipend every year. Just for consideration in next round's budget. (laughs) It's a lot of wine. So much so that Jesus... Jesus looks at them and doesn't say, hey, just take that whatever that is. He says, no, fill them up. And they fill them up to the brim because he wants to make sure there's a lot. Right? Again, lots of layers. Don't miss the simple. Jesus is making a lot of wine. Some of us, again, celebrate that a little more than we should. And some of us resist that more than we should for all the problems that alcohol has uh, been used for. Don't allow that to take away the goodness that God sees in it and has given to us in it. Now, think for a moment about what has gone on. They've come and said they're out of wine. They bring it to the to the religious teacher, the rabbi, somebody would have, would have called him. And how does he respond to the problem? We have no wine. Let me go deal with the religious artifacts here. He starts working with the, with the, the religious stuff and doesn't, he doesn't go back to the kitchen, right? He, he doesn't say, hold on, I know, I know a guy with a vineyard. He starts messing with the religious stuff. And so everybody watching would think, all right, Clearly, that guy's not going to help. He's just worried about all his religious stuff. Move on from him. He instructs the servants to draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Basically, uh, for these parties, they always hired somebody to be the lead partier, uh, meaning the person who set the, the tone of everything, the MC, the one who said, all right, it's time to dance. All right, it's time to cut the cake. That guy. And he brings the cup to them and... and and he took it. And somewhere between verse 8 and verse 9, water became wine, and Jesus loves us so much that we don't know. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn knew, knew, knew exactly what had happened. Which you got to love that. It'd be easy to forget about those guys. No, no, no. They watched all of this. But the guys in charge didn't know it. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. Again, the bridegroom, this would have been his responsibility. And most likely he would have known they were out and he would have been running around panicked. What are we going to do? And the master, the lead or the guy who is making sure everybody has a good time, calls him over. He thinks he's being called to say, hey, you ruined it. In verse 10, he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. A lot of uh, commentators who wrote during the uh, early 1900s uh, all the way into the 50s and 60s uh, translate this and work really hard to say. What he means is that they didn't have enough wine, not that the people drank too much wine. And I'm sorry, the Greek doesn't say that. The Greek says they drank too much. Jesus is not saying, yeah, they drank too much. No, 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 no. no. But yes, they drank too much. They drank it all. They drank freely. And the, the master of the ceremony says, look, we do this. This is what we do. You, you bring out the good stuff first. And when everybody's not thinking about the quality anymore, you bring out the bad stuff. It's what we do. I get that. And he says, you, you've kept the good wine until now? And first notice, he doesn't say until last. He says until now, which I think is very important. Because Jesus doesn't give this sign to say this is the end, but to say this is the beginning you thought the party was over. You have not yet begun. But also notice the, the oddity of this is where the story ends. You don't get, and this is what the bridegroom said. You don't get how the bridegroom thought about what this guy said to him. It's meant to end with you looking and saying, whoa. You thought I just brought out the good stuff at the beginning. We've been moving toward until now. And Jesus is giving this sign to say, until now is here. I've come to bring goodness. I've come to bring life. I've come to make it overflow with new wine. And his glory was manifest. So I I, want to want to point out four, maybe five, because that's how organized I am. We'll go with four. Four aspects of Jesus that you see in this story. One, Jesus knows how to party. It would be foolish to run past the fact that Jesus in this first sign where he's coming in as the light shining in the darkness. Right? He's coming in where death rules and he's coming to change that. He comes to a party. He comes to a feast and he makes it better. He comes and he celebrates not not uh, with childlike silly cupcakes with sprinkles and not with child, childish, foolish drunkenness, right? He's not the guy at the party who's like, woo, let's go! It ends up, you know, passed out on the front lawn. But he is the guy who says, as we read already in Isaiah 25, I come with aged wine. In Joel 2, he says, your vats will overflow, right? To see the goodness of saying, no, 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 I want the party to go on. I want to celebrate. If Jesus is the one who has come to bring the celebration and raise it up, dear Presbyterians and especially Presbyterian pastors, that means we should be a bit more joyful. The, 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 the question is, are you? If you get invited to a celebration, now it doesn't mean, right, everything's great, we're okay. Right? No, 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 no. But the appreciation for the deep, rich joy that knows how to celebrate and knows, right, again, Jesus is sitting at a wedding that's not his, and he knows what it's going to take to get there, and he's still able to have fun. That's the other thing I want you to see. He knows how to party, and you should know how to party. He is the bridegroom. There are so many ways in which God has revealed who he is and who we are to him. We are his sheep, and he is our shepherd, which is a great thing to remember. It's a way of Jesus kindly calling us foolish. We are idiots, and I love you. We are the children, and he is the father. But all throughout the story, right, there's a reason that the Bible begins and ends with a marriage, And there's a reason that we have a book like the Song of Solomon in there. Because Jesus is the bridegroom and we are his bride. Which means while, yes, he has a fatherly affection for us, and yes, he shepherds and cares for us like sheep, his heart toward us is the heart of a bridegroom who longs for his bride. Again, what that means is in this scene, you see Jesus sitting at a wedding, longing for his wedding day and knowing what it takes to get there and able to wait. And what that means for us is that our bridegroom is taking us to that wedding day, who's bringing us to that marriage, which, which means The weight of our personal marriages is lightened tremendously. Whether you are married or not, you don't need marriage to be the place where your greatest love is found, right? Again, whether you are married or not. For those of you who are not married, this is Jesus sitting at his wedding saying, I am waiting for you. Which means you can sit at other weddings and know that you have something much greater than a wedding waiting for you. You have the bridegroom who knows what it's like to wait and continues to wait for you. And for those of you who are married, it means you don't have to look at your spouse as the one who must be the end-all be-all of your life. Because you've been loved by a bridegroom who waits for you who has given himself for you so that you can give yourself freely. Jesus knows how to party. Jesus is the bridegroom. And Jesus is always, it's dangerous to say always, but it means always, always at work behind the scenes. Again, pointing out the beauty of this Jesus is making his glory manifest. And even the miracle of turning the water into wine is not something that's written down. We don't know how it happened. And on top of that, the only people who see it are the servants, the disciples, and man, you know, Mary saw it. She was somehow up in there and got to, got to know everything that happened. But other than that, again, imagine you're the bridegroom. Somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I I went to get a refill and they said, there's no more wine. Do you know what's going on? When I was uh, in college, uh, our fraternity hosted every sorority on campus for a a dinner. We were gonna serve Carrabas. It was gonna be nice. And as we went to pick up the food from Carrabas, I think it was two hours ahead of time, they said, sorry, we didn't make it for you. We had like 500 sorority girls waiting for us to serve dinner. Our entire fraternity panicked. You know what it would be like to be the bridegroom and for somebody to say, hey, uh, you're out. Uh Uh-oh. He says, oh, don't worry, that Jesus guy's here. And you look over and you see the little interaction between Mary and Jesus. You're like, oh, looks like something might happen. You hear, hey, just do whatever he says. You're like, all right. And then Jesus starts talking about purification jars. You're like, well, guess he's not helping. And you go panic over here and you know, that dude, he cares about that churchy stuff and that religious stuff, but clearly he doesn't care about the problem in my life. Clearly he doesn't understand what I'm going through. And while he might be good for some people, he is absolutely, oh, new wine, awesome. Where did that come from? <laughs> Have you ever had issues going on in your life where you thought, God, what are you doing? Are you paying attention? I know the church stuff is going and you you, you wanna do your Jesus stuff and you telling me I should read the Bible and I should sing in church and all that, but I've got real problems and until you start paying attention, I'm not gonna pay attention. And all along throughout all of this, Jesus is constantly working behind the scenes and this is what he does over and over again where you think he doesn't have his hand on the wheel and somehow your life is out of his control and he is shepherding it along toward the feast and that's the last thing i want you to see is jesus wants to give you good that is that is his heart Again, in the moment in that wedding, the bridegroom was not feeling good. And Jesus sitting in the room is saying, I'm going to bring good to you. Again, this is a sign. This is a miracle. Who cares if a young couple have a short wedding feast? Jesus does. He draws near to them. And he says, I want to give you good so that, where does that story end? The master of ceremonies pulling the bridegroom over and saying, look at what you did. And we don't get to hear the bridegroom say, no, 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 it wasn't me. But instead we get to watch him receive all the credit for Jesus's goodness. He gets all the glory for the power of Jesus. And Jesus is delighted by it. Some of you need to hear this mostly today, that the gospel, the good news of Jesus is not that you get a clean slate and get to try again. It is not that your sins are wiped off the slate and get it right tomorrow, but instead it is that you get a full slate You get all of his goodness, not just as a gift, but as a a full life that is yours. His righteousness, his goodness is the credit that you get. Not no more debt, but you get credit. He loves to give that goodness to us. This is who Jesus is. Again, we're going to take some weeks and look at all these different aspects. Jesus loves to give you his goodness. Would you pray with me, please? Uh, Father, open our eyes and open our hands to see and receive that goodness. Uh, Humble us uh, so that we would see you as you are, not as we have pretended you are. And move us to worship and love you in Christ's name. Amen.